on the mount, but it's something that we say because it does come from this opening verse where it says Jesus goes up or went up on a mountain side. Now, in this room, there are many people who know about going up on a mountainside. Ali and I are not one of those people. I'll show you a few pictures of some people on mountainside. The first one is Molly and I. This is us on a mountainside 12 years ago, and we've never been back. That was it. That was our one crowning, shining moment. I don't even know what mountain we're on, I'm going to be honest. I don't even, I mean, uh, we were on vacation. They said, let's go climb a mountain. We, We didn't have kids at the time. We said, okay. So I don't even know what mountain I'm on. I know I'm in the Adirondacks somewhere. I climbed this one mountain, and I've really never— Although I kind of—you know, like, people who climb mountains, that's kind of a cool thing. Like, I want to be someone that climbs mountains. I just don't. I just don't climb mountains. So, like, I want to, and all the gear looks really cool, and, like, it looks neat, right? And I want to wear all those cool, fancy clothing. But I just don't go—I just don't go. So I, I dress the part, but I never actually go outside to do it. But many of you do. Many of you do. I mean, we've got a, a, an expert in our midst. Sam Richbart has nearly climbed all the high peaks in the Adirondacks. It's called the 46er Club. I don't know, Sam, I don't know if you're in the building here, but how many, uh, Adam, how many, build, how many has he done so far? 39 out of the 46. Okay, so he's almost there to being a 46er, being in the 46 club. He knows what he's doing when he climbs a mountain. And some of you might not be that advanced, but lots of you have tackled the mountainside. Here's the Mooney family. They're on top of Mount Nittany overlooking Penn State College. So the, the, the Moonies have had a mountainside, ex, mountaintop experience. The Jeremiah and, and Janelle Davis, they're on Mount J here in the Adirondacks. So they, the, maybe I was on Mount J too. I have no idea because I don't know what mountain I actually was on. Uh, but there they are in there. Jim and Kay Ingerson, they're on Pikes Peak here in Colorado. So they talk about some amazing uh, views in Colorado. And in fact, the Wilson family, they were, just, uh, they were just in Colorado for their sabbatical. So this is Hazel Wilson. She's also on Pikes Peak here. Uh, they had their own mountaintop experience. And finally, to route it out, here's Mike Okie. Mike, I don't know what mountain you're on just like me, but it looks awesome. So good for you as well. And uh, like you said, most of you also probably have a picture too. Maybe you're like me. You've, you got yourself up a mountain at some point, or like in uh, Mount Washington in uh, New England, you can just drive up it, right? You can get your mountaintop experience and not have to put in any of the work. My guess is that it takes away a little bit of the, the aura of it if, you're, uh, if you've just driven up the mountain instead of, you know, work to climb the mountain. But uh, you all have, many of us have, these mountaintop experiences. But when Matthew writes that Jesus went up on a mountainside, He's not just painting a a beautiful picture for us or or describing a mountaintop experience. This is not actually Matthew's intent by telling us that. Because honestly, Jesus could have preached this anywhere. Why do we need to know that it was on a mountain? And that's the point we want to look at today. Why is it that Jesus went up on a mountain? He could have done this sermon anywhere. So why does Matthew want us to know that it was up on a mountain? And it's not just for the mountaintop experience. See, Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, a Jewish people who had had accepted Jesus as Savior, but now needed to have some reinforcement on how Jesus fulfilled their history. It's like, okay, we, we accept Jesus as Messiah, but we need help now understanding how the whole 
picture uh, gets into focus. We need to understand how he fits into everything that God has been telling us about himself for generations, thousands, thousands of years. Why else would you start a book like Matthew with a Jewish genealogy? Right? Not much of a hook there. It's not like that's a, the greatest way to get your audience to keep reading the story. Like, oh, here's a genealogy. Oh, man. Like, let's skip that page and get to the first part. He's doing something. He's trying to show this people. He's weaving themes and stories together that Jewish people would have picked up on. And so when they read that Jesus went up on a mountainside to teach, this would have triggered all sorts of things to that audience. As they heard Jesus's, or as they heard Jesus's story, they would have recognized their own story. They would have begun to read this book of Matthew with this genealogy, and they begin to read the story, and they begin to go, we've, we've heard that before. Because their story starts in Egypt, a people embittered in a land enslaved. And then God delivers them from their slavery and brings them out. So now instead of a people embittered and a land enslaved, they are now a people liberated, heading towards a promised land. And on their way to the promised land, many rabbis teach that Israel was tempted three times as they crossed over the Red Sea. They say that when the people of Israel crossed over the Red Sea, they then encountered three temptations before they reached Mount Sinai. And the first one is this. They were tempted not to trust God. And this story comes out of Exodus 16. So let's take a look at that. They cross over, and the very first temptation they have is a temptation of trust. It says this in Exodus 16. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, which wasn't true. But that's what they remember. But you have brought us out here into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And so it says that the first test, the first temptation, was one not to trust. Will you trust me to collect just enough that day? And then the next day, just enough that day. And then the next day, just enough that day. And on Sundays, you can do two because you're not supposed to work on Sundays. So you can gather a couple. But will you trust me as we head towards the promised land? Deuteronomy says that this is what they were to learn. They were to learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is what they were to learn through this trial, through this temptation, through this test. You do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. However, they continued to grumble. And they took more. Many of them took more than they needed. They don't trust God. They fail. Second is that they are then tempted to test God. First, they're tempted to trust. 
then they're tempted to test him. It says this, the very next story in Exodus 17 now. But then, first they didn't have bread, now they don't have any water. There was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And so he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord. They tested him. Give us water to drink. Now, through this whole thing, they were to learn a second lesson. And Deuteronomy talks about this one too. Deuteronomy says that they were to learn, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did in Massa. Remember Massa. That's what they did. You are to learn, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did then. When they failed the second test, they refused to go any longer until they demanded that the Lord give them something to drink. They tested God. Strike two. Then finally, the third is that they were tempted to turn from God. To trust, to test, and here finally, to turn. Because what happens is, right as they're about to get there, they come up against another four, another kingdom, another nation. Again, next story in Exodus 17. The Amalekites, they came and attacked the Israelites at Redim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. This is their first, uh, prior to knowing Egypt, this was the first time they encountered another kingdom, another surrounding kingdom, who was coming to fight, to attack, to turn them towards themselves. And the question became, will you fight or will you turn and bow? Will you become enslaved to something else now? Right as you had to taste for the first time of freedom. Will you turn or will you not? Now, they won the battle that day. And Deuteronomy says this is what they were to learn. So each time, Deuteronomy is like a commentary on what was going on in this story. And Deuteronomy says that they learned not to go after other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. This is what they were to learn. Do not go after other gods, the gods of the people around you. Don't turn from the Lord. And while they won the battle that day, that day in Exodus 17, they won the battle, they eventually fail at this temptation too. They intermarry. They begin to worship other gods. And not too long after this story, they turn from God and they fail in this one Two, trusting, testing, and turning. Finally, after these three temptations, in Exodus 19, they reach Mount Sinai. And Moses went up onto the mountain to receive the law. Remember, he goes up on the mountain, right? He's got his two, he's got his two, uh, what are the, the pillars? They're not pillars, the tablets, right? He's got the tablets, he goes up and receives God's law. After mostly failing in these three attempts in trusting and testing and turning, it's like God said, you need to be shown a better way to live. 
You've been enslaved too long, and you need to get Egypt out of your soul. So he gave them a law, his law, the law. Now, the law tends to get a bad rap, doesn't it? We talk about the law, that tends to have a negative connotation to it. It's seen as restrictive and preventative and closed off. But the law, God's law, is not meant to close us off, but to open us up to a better way. It actually opens us up. It closes us off to something else so that it can open us up to something better. The law is good, and we cherish it. The very first psalm talks about, the very first lines of the very first psalms sing the law's praises. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but, those deli- but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The law is good. It's like those who are planted by it. It's like, it's like you're a tree that grows and it is prosperous and fruitful. This isn't supposed to close us off to something. This is supposed to open us up to a whole new, better way See, I have laws. If you have kids, you have laws too. I have laws for my family. My wife and I, we established the laws of the long household, right? And these are not meant to be a detriment to them or simply for my amusement, but it's to open them up to a whole better way, a way they would not naturally go on their own, right? I want you to sleep at a certain time. You would try to stay up as late as you possibly can. That's what you naturally would do. But I have a law that tells you when to go to bed because it's good for you, even though you wouldn't naturally do it on your own. I have a law, I have rules about what you will eat because you would eat candy and ice cream all day if you could, right? Every day, a little Rudy. Pop, 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 which means popsicle. Pop, pop up all day. I have laws, rules that govern what they can eat because you naturally wouldn't do it yourselves because it's good for you. The law is good. I want you to avoid certain things that you would naturally go after because they're bad for you. Rudy gets a sight of water and she's ready. She's all in. But there are rules to keep her safe. The law is good. It opens us. It doesn't close us off. It opens us up to a better way. And if you trust me, and if you don't test me, and if you don't turn from me, you will be blessed by them. And so God calls Moses up on a mountainside to open him up to this better way. But you know the end of the story. After more lack of trusting and testing and turning. Literally, when Moses goes down that mountain, Israel is already worshiping something else. It took however long it took for him to go up there and come back down. That's as fast as they fail again. Not trusting and testing and turning. 
And so Israel's made to wander the wilderness for 40 years. They had chance after chance after chance. And finally, I said, we, we're going to start over again in the next generation. <laughs> the next generation can get to that promised land. You're going to wander. And so they wander for 40 years. Israel fails. And this is Matthew's audience that's reading this. This is their history, their ancestry, their story. And then they get to the part of Matthew's story where he begins to introduce Jesus. And so in Matthew 4, 1 and 2, they read Jesus wanders the wilderness for 40 days. Interesting. It's not a mistake. It's not a coincidence. Oh, so Jesus, Jesus wanders. He, he, walks, he walks that road too. And then after 40 days, later in Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted how many times? Three times. Jesus is tempted not to trust God. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Where Israel fails, Jesus is faithful. And Jesus is tempted to test God. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did in Massa, where Israel fails. Jesus is faithful. And then Jesus is tempted to turn from God to the other kingdoms of this world. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oath in his name. And do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. Where Israel fails, Jesus is faithful. And finally, we get to Matthew 5. And what, of course, would Jesus do next? He'd go up on a mountainside. That's what he would do. He went up on the mountainside to deliver God's fulfilled law that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Friends, that's what we're going to look at this fall. A whole new way to live. A beautiful law where Israel fails, Jesus is faithful, and Jesus comes to open us up to a better way. He opens us up to this whole new way to live. And literally, it says this in the text. Because in our English version, it says that he goes up on a mountainside, and if you, if, depending on what translation you have, uh, most, like the NIV, it'll say, he began to teach them. But in the original language, it literally leads, Jesus goes up on a mountainside, and he opened his mouth. That's what it says. Jesus goes up on a mountainside and opened his mouth. Now, this is actually a major theme at the beginning of Matthew. Lots of stuff gets opened. If you're looking for it, you realize, oh my goodness, every chapter at the beginning of Matthew, something is getting opened. Treasures are opened. The heavens are opened. Mouths are opened. Doors are opened. Eyes are opened. We're being led into this whole new way of life, this better way. And by God's very mouth, by Jesus' very words, he opens the law so that we might experience this new way. 
One scholar says that the Sermon on the Mount is a calling to a radically new lifestyle in conscious distinction from the norms of the rest of society. Let me say that again. The Sermon on the Mount is a calling to a radically new lifestyle, one that does not come naturally to us. This is why we need the law, because it doesn't, it's not what we normally would do, but it's a calling to a radically new lifestyle in conscious distinction from the norms of the rest of society. You see, what Jesus is about to say in these next three chapters goes against the grain. It goes against this natural inclination we have. These are the sort of the topics we're going to hit on over this fall. Because this is what comes natural to us. What comes natural to us is that we harbor anger. Let me ask you, anyone here been angry, frustrated, fed up recently? Yeah? Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jesus has a sermon for you. And we desire self-pleasure. Here's a little darker one, but has anyone been coping with everything, all the, the, the hardships of life now? Has anybody been uh, coping with this in unhealthy, sinful ways? Yeah, Jesus has a sermon for us. And we hate our enemies. That one's easy. We hate our enemies. That comes real natural to us. My, my daughter, I was having a conversation with her uh, in her bed a few nights ago, and there's this girl in, in, in her school that she just doesn't like. Oh, that, this girl, oh, I just, you know, she went on and on. Da, 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 da. And I realized at one point, she actually had switched her name. Her name was something like Grupp. I'm just making it like Susie Grupp, but Mia changed to, Mia, uh, to Susie Grubb. She called her Susie Grubb. I was like, her name's Grub? And she's like, well, no, but I kind of switch it because Grub sounds gross. This is what comes out, right? Like, this is what naturally we go to. Jesus has a sermon for her. And Jesus has a sermon for you. And we very easily seek self-recognition. Right? Anyone here gone above above and beyond the call of duty in the last two, three months? Has anyone gone like way above the calling in, in a workspace, in a ministry, in, in your family, somewhere else? You've gone way above what usually happens. And don't you really want someone to know about it? Yeah, right? Yeah? Don't you? It's like, so you'll subtly slip it in conversation just to, you know, just, just so you know that I've been working extra hard. We, we naturally seek self-recognition. And Jesus has a sermon for us. We hoard. Self-preservation comes very natural. Something happens. And we joke about it with toilet paper, right, when when COVID hits. But we hoard things in our hearts, in our homes, in our bank accounts. Has anyone been, been worried about money and provision lately? Yeah, Jesus has a sermon for us. And we pass judgment Right? Has anyone had a disagreement lately? And it's really easy when that happens to categorize and label. Jesus has a sermon for us. It's like all these things are like these trophies, these self-preservation trophies we keep. They're ways we self-justify and self-congratulate and self-preserve. And it closes us off. It closes us off. But Jesus goes on a mountainside and he opens his mouth. 
doors, eyes, heaven itself to show us a better way. And it's hard to live in this radically new lifestyle, isn't it? Because it just doesn't come naturally. We're rooted in our sin from birth. It just doesn't, from a young age, we know how to hate our enemies. Jesus says at the end of this sermon that this way is going to be narrow and very few are going to be able to walk it. And he says some will look like they have found it, but inwardly they have not. They are like wolves. Some are going to fake it well, and they haven't found it. And just like Israel, we will struggle not to trust and to test and to turn from it. We will fail at this, friends. But there's hope because Jesus is faithful and because he went up a second hill. He goes up a second hill. Let's call the band up as we reflect. Jesus carried his cross to a place called Golgotha. The Bible says it could be seen from some distance away. It's it's led uh, some to believe, many to believe that this was actually somewhere up elevated perhaps on a hill or a mountainside. See, Jesus climbs another hill later on in the story. And he had every right to harbor anger in those moments. And yet he looked on them with love. And he had every right to self-pleasure. Save yourself, the crowds called. And yet he self-emptied. And he had every right to hate his enemies. And yet he prays for them. And he had every right to self-recognition. And yet he endured insult instead. And he had every right to hoard, to self-preserve, to keep going. And yet he gave everything. And he had every right to pass judgment. And yet he died and paid the price for every time that we don't trust and we test and we turn. And then he rose from the dead and opened the doors, the eyes, heaven itself. For a bunch of failures like us. On a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross. The emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish that old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. And I'll cling to that old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown.